Hey guys, welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by some of our very, very close friends, some of our sponsors, people that we trust. Uh, they make some of the gear and some of the equipment that you know you'll see in our videos because we legitimately enjoy it. Uh, we we like using the stuff, um, and they make this podcast very possible for you for free. The first of our advertisers are our good friends. Uh, it's the guys from Triarch Systems. Now, guys, I'm here with Kevin Owens. Hey, Kev, uh, you have a favorite Triarch firearm? Uh, yeah, but it belongs to Mike Glover, so I can't have it. <laughs> Is that the, the Tri-11 that he has? Yeah, that thing's beautiful. He has a little uh, truck gun that I've steal from time to time that would have folding stock on it as well. But, hey, you know, um, it's they're company guns. It's, that's how I look at it. Yeah, I might have to borrow that that Tri-11 at some point. I've mentioned it before on podcasts. It's probably my favorite of the of the pistols that they have, although I know that Triarch will also modify Glock firearms, and they say Glock is perfection. I actually just hung out today with one of the Glock reps. Um, but I think that Triarch can take something that's so good and make it even better. If you guys go to www.triarchsystems.com and use the coupon code FIELDCRAFT, you will get 5% off any of your builds, and that includes all of the grip modifications that they do, the, the custom finishes, you name it. You can get 5% off with the code FIELDCRAFT. So please go to Triarch Systems. Next sponsor, next advertiser is Casey Highlights. Um, Kevin, do you remember where you were when you first saw the movie Back to the Future? No comment. No comment, yeah. So <laughs> what year was that? That was like 85 or 86. That's or pretty something. basic training. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's where I first saw Casey Highlights. It was on Marty McFly's Toyota Tacoma that he had in his, in his garage. And I was like, man, those things look awesome. And then over the years, uh, I started tracking, like, you know, who was using Casey Highlights. And it was pretty much everyone that was anyone in the, in the off-road industry. Casey highlights will bring you a lot of illumination to your off-road pursuits. And, you know, you really can't have enough illumination when there's no lights where you're going. So we're huge fans of Casey highlights. We're putting them on all of our builds. If you go to the website, www.caseyhighlights.com and you use the code fieldcraft, you will get 10% off your order. And again, you cannot have enough lights. So please go there and buy a whole bunch of lights uh, put them on your light bar, put them on your front bumper. Um, you know, hell, you could even rig them up to your, your office chair and illuminate people when they come up to you. I don't know. Maybe you could do that. But guys, go to Casey Highlights. Uh, please check them out. Use the coupon code FIELDCRAFT. Keita, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike. You do podcasts a lot, right? This isn't a new thing. No, it's not a new thing. I do a radio show every Wednesday, actually. What, what's the radio show? Lock and Load with Bill Frady. So what's that about? What's the uh, premise of it? Well, I didn't choose the name, but he calls me the weaponized woman. Oh. So it's basically um, daily carry for, you know, EDC for women. And I bring a lot of female guests on. I do have male guests as well, but I typically try to bring on females who shoot and carry day to day. Oh, that's really cool. What's the link for that? I mean, is there like a, a is it a channel or is it serious? What's it's, the... It's lockandloadradio.com. Lockandloadradio.com. Okay, and we'll put that in the show notes too. That's kind of cool. So what's the, like just in your show um, when you're on on Wednesdays, what's the premise of women and carry? Like what's your, what's your, idea, what's your ideas about that st kind of stuff? Well, we usually I bring on women who carry every day, shoot competition, whatever it may be. They're a weaponized woman in some form. So they usually describe to me what they carry on their person, what kind of gun they shoot, how they carry, whether it's appendix or a bra holster or whatever it may be. They just give their viewpoint. Yeah, because it, it's a lot. I mean, obviously, anatomically, it's a lot different in carry considerations. Like when people ask me my opinion, I really tell them, look, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm making it up because I'm using logic. But the reality is, you know, there's a lot of differences in how you carry because women dress different. Anatomically, obviously, you're different. And so the considerations are many. And like I tell guys, like I'm a big proponent of carrying uh, kind of like a European man satchel kind of thing because I like the idea of having a lot more than just a pistol in my waistband. So I carry a tourniquet and all kinds of stuff. But for women, um, what's the, like if you had to lay out just a, a small like snapshot of what you recommend 
in how women carry, what, what would it be? What would your recommendation be? One thing I recommend is not to purse carry because if someone's coming at you, they're probably going to be coming at you for your purse and try to separate you from your purse, which separates you from your weapon, which is not a good thing. So the other thing I say is whatever your chosen method is to carry, pick two because there are so many variations for women. We have the bra holster, we have the corset holster, we have the thigh, the thigh rig, we have the belt. You can do appendix, small of the back, all these different things. But if you're changing it up all the time, your hand is not automatically going to go to the location of your weapon. Mm-hmm. So if you just pick two, then you can train yourself to automatically go to that spot. And before you go out for the day, just do a little dry fire first to refamiliarize yourself with the particular location you've chosen for that day. Yeah, and so you just said it just now. I never even thought about that because if it's if somebody's snatching your purse and your pistols in your purse, and then it escalates because you're I don't know fighting for your purse, and you don't give up, you give up your purse because you don't want to uh, increase the risk. They have a gun now, and if you're in a back alleyway fighting for that, then you're fighting and tussling for your gun, not just your purse. So I never even thought about that till you said it. That's a good point. How how do you carry? What, or What do you carry, and how do you carry most often? I carry a SIG P365, and I carry appendix. Awesome. That's why I just gave that as a gift to uh, a friend of ours, Waylon, who's a local chef, and I'm going to train her. And I think appendix carry, uh, I saw it evolve over the global war on terror, but also as a contractor. Why do you carry appendix out of curiosity versus other means of carry? It's very close to the location of my gun when I'm shooting competition. Mm. So my hand automatically goes to my hip. And even though it's a little bit different, it's a little slight different location, it's close enough that my hand just automatically goes to that area. Yeah, it's a good point. Like a lot of people, when I tell people uh, concealed, carry concealed and carry appendix, I don't just mean center line of the belt. Um, most often if you have a belt on anyway, it's got a belt buckle. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be slightly offset to the dominant side of your hand. And I like that position. I like it because one, the barrel, I had a guy who I said, Hey, this is how we carry. And I saw it evolve over time. Like, um, in, in the early trips to Afghanistan, we were carry concealed and leather holsters on our waistband. Cause we didn't have Kydex. I think Kydex didn't come out really till a little bit later. And, and the holsters were, were weak. It was like a Black Hawk CQC, which I, I don't know why that still exists, but I just a, a, not a, a fan of that holster. And then we started evolving and doing mobile operations, so we were always in a vehicle. So our legs were bent. And so if your legs are bent and you're carrying on your hip, then the barrel is digging into probably your femoral, but into your thigh, and it's uncomfortable. But if you can move it closer to the groove of your uh, crotch or your groin, if you're sitting in a vehicle, if you're sitting at a desk, whatever you're doing, you could still carry and have that pistol um, on your hip or on your, at this, in this case, on your appendix carry. Um, do you educate and teach everyday carry considerations courses for women? Or is that something you just, you're doing for free on seminars and, and different things? I don't teach a particular course on it, but I do volunteer my time in my home community to other women where I'll go to a lady's house and have her invite all her girlfriends over and I'll bring whatever guns I have so they can try out different things, feel the grip. And we go over the basics like what all the buttons do and options for carry and how to load a magazine, you know, just the very basic things you can do without ever stepping foot on a range. Mm. And then I take them to the range. So the in-home sessions, I just volunteer my time and make sure they're educated and understand the basics of safety before ever going to a range or purchasing their first firearm. So when we, we've talked about like in an open discussion, trying to figure out, should we do, um, should we do women only courses? When you hear that, does that, does that sound wrong? Like if we do, because what I, what I hate is it almost sounds like we're dumbing it down for women because I think men at the basic level mostly don't want to say, hey, I don't know anything about guns. 
but a lot of them don't know anything about guns. So when we do a woman's only course, does that sound belittling or should, should, should we be considering doing women only courses? Well, I think people can get offended by pretty much anything these days. And if they want to think it's sexist, they're going to think it's sexist. But I just taught a women's only class, which I've never done before. And I was really glad I did because a lot of times what I see is married couples or significant others coming in as a couple together taking the class they end up fighting they get frustrated with each other they're trying to correct each other and it just doesn't work well to teach your spouse or significant other in and this is a generalization for sure not every case is like this but i do see that a lot where when i put on the ladies only course and their husbands had to stay home they were able to pay closer attention without worrying about judgment from their significant other or what feedback they were going to get from their significant other. They could just be there and be working on themselves without thinking about anybody else. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, uh, we, we teach a lot of um, one-on-one training and we do consultations and people say, hey, I'm getting this or hey, can you train my spouse because she doesn't listen to me or he doesn't listen to me. And I think that's a good idea. That's why, I mean, we, we have one on May 15th. We have a women's only course where Amber's coming in. And she's not an expert at pistol. I'll be helping her teach that. But she is somebody who carries every day, is a normal mom who has to think about considerations in her world. And that's super important. I, I think there should be women's only courses. Just like I think, um, you know, if you're proactive as a man and and – you're a beginner and you don't have a good background not being afraid to take a beginner's course a lot of guys i should have they'll show up to our like an intermediate type course and they just really suck really bad and it's because they're they don't want to admit they have faults or they have flaws or they just don't have a lot of a lot of experience you're the expert i have like a a group of experts that do different things right primitive survival first aid uh, battlefield trauma a mindset, all kinds of things. And your little niche is movement. And I say little because it's, I want to, <laughs> I want to profoundly state that it's not little. It's like the most significant thing, but you're one of one people that I know who specializes in it. Where did that come from? This, this idea of focusing on economy of motion and being efficient, efficient in movement. Well, I was a registered nurse, and I actually helped people with injuries, disabilities, um, people who ended up in wheelchairs for the first time, learn how to move their bodies efficiently in a way that helps prevent injuries and is also saving time, saves on wear and tear on their bodies. So at this point, I had actually, I had just got out of the army and I had never shot a pistol. I shot everything else under the sun except a pistol. So I decided to go and observe pistol shooting at a local local range and I saw the way people were moving around with a gun and my nurse brain said, this doesn't make sense. Why are they moving this way? So I started asking questions and found that the reason they're moving their bodies that way in a way that's not efficient at all is because they feel like they have to in order to keep the gun pointed in a safe direction so that they're not pointing it at the audience behind them. In this scenario, they have what they call the 180. So you have 180 degrees in front of you that you're allowed to point the gun. Anywhere behind there is flagging the audience, which is kind of rude. So they don't like it when you do that. So it's, it's like a constraint that was based, uh, you know, like a, a institutional constraint that forced them to move awkwardly in this environment. And you realize there's a way or a path to teach people to move optimally and make them faster, right? And still keep the gun safe and pointed in a safe direction. Interesting. So you started, now is this the start point for 180 or is this Not something yet. that came? Okay. So you, you start getting into this and start developing curriculum. Um, I mean, you have a book on this. Yes. Right? Tell me, how, tell me how this journey kind of began and then how you started collecting information from experts. How'd that work out? Well, at that, on that particular day, I just 
decided I just wanted to test a theory and had one of the shooters humor me. I set, set up a little drill with about five yards of movement, and they took off three seconds moving five yards. So then they asked me to start working with them. And I did, and I got curious and started looking for research on movement, found there was nothing out there at all. So I started looking at movement for other sports, finding what is scientifically proven moving left to right, right to left, forward to back, back to front, and so on, in all these different scenarios. Okay, now we have to figure out whether or not we can move our body in that way or close to that way with a gun in our hand, keeping it pointed in a safe direction. So I tested these theories on some of the top shooters in the world, got their feedback, and that's where the book came from. Once I tested these theories, and it took years of research and experimentation to figure out what was working. And, you know, that doesn't mean we're not always going to keep on improving and finding new ways, but this is the best we have right now. Yeah, it's like taking what exists, which is this uh, analysis of, high-performance elite athletes in their sports, in their industries, and then applying it to not only an IPSC, IDPA-like competitive uh, firearms world, but also a tactical world, right? I mean, this is – when you when I think about um, efficiency, it's not just moving into a box or and moving out of a box. It's moving into a position behind cover or concealment or and or concealment and moving out of it, which is exactly. valuable – um, for everybody, even the even the tacticians and the guys who do it for a living, right? Yes, absolutely. And if I can take three seconds off moving five yards, well, keep in mind that was 2010. Movement for the shooting sports was in a very different place at that time. And it's my book has actually revolutionized shooting for the or movement for the shooting sports. And I want to do that in the 360 world as well because seconds save lives. Yeah, it's you're you're absolutely right. I think that's. I remember back then because I I used to do uh, IPSC uh, competitions and IDPA as well, and everything was very static. Even our IPSC competitions and stages were pretty static. I mean, we weren't moving dynamically. We we're moving into a position and shooting, you know, IPSC targets and ID or, uh, or or steel. But I don't remember moving a lot, and then it started evolving and getting aggressively dynamic uh, with open guns and, and running and gunning, essentially. And then it, it, I pay attention to like the buddies of mine, like the Rakazas and the um, Matt Burkett's an old school dude, but the, the Todd Max Jarrett's, Michelle. Max, all the AMU guys, Dan Horner. And the way they win is movement. Because if they're really fluid position to position, everybody has a pretty much an equal playing field on the gun, right? Because they're, they're, they, they've technically mastered that. But it's the movement. It's the guys who are in shape. And everybody's like, wait a minute. I mean, if you're Robbie Latham, and <laughs> no offense to Robbie, I've trained with him before, he's not the most dynamic physical mover. Then you have this, like, these guys coming in. Um, what's his name? He shoots for Glock. He's a, he's a buddy of mine. Um, Dave Savigny? And that well, day, he used to. Yeah, he, now he's he, FN. Yeah, he's FN right now. I, I used to be real good buddies with Dave. Um, what the hell is his name? The, the team captain for Glock. You got to look that up. I can't. thinking of Vogel? No, he's not, not Vogel. Anymore either. You got to look that up. Vince, you got to look that up. Team captain for Glock. I just had a brain Shane Coley? Shane. Yeah, Shane. So, I'm like, how far back are we going here? Yeah, so Shane, uh, like you see a guy like Shane and even a Rikaza, they're doing they're doing powerlifting, they're doing sp sprints, they're doing all these dynamic physical. I mean, they're army guys too, so they brought that physical world. But that to me equaled the playing field because you have guys like Todd Jarrett, Robbie Latham, uh, even Matt Burkett that come from a world of you have to be the fastest shooter. You're running in a 1911. Now we're in single action pistols. You're running and gunning, and now it's a whole new world. And this is this makes sense more so now than ever because it's teaching dynamic movement. You, you taught this morning um, in a video that we recorded the basics of moving out of a position first and foremost and then moving into a position. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I want people to understand the importance of this. 
Okay, so moving into and out of positions are the bread and butter of movement for shooting. No matter what kind of shooting you're doing, whether it's in the 360 world or the 180 world, it doesn't matter. So some of the main steps you can use to get out of a shooting position are the crossover step. So you're taking your trailing foot and crossing it over your leading foot, and that automatically rotates your hips for you, pointing them in the direction you want to be moving so you can move more efficiently. And this is one that you use on more close, open, easy targets because you are shifting your weight as you're engaging. Your feet might not be going anywhere, but your your center of gravity continues to move, so it makes the shooting part a little bit harder. Hmm. So is that so is that part that part is pit like if you're crossing over, like say my right foot is crossing over my left, the intent is to drive my hips aligned with the direction of travel faster. So you start out basically falling to the side. So your hips are pointed to your targets while you're engaging them. Mm. But then the instant you're finished engaging the target, you throw that leg over midline Mm. and that rotates your hips. Oh, I love that. Okay. What else? The other one is the pivot push. So this one is a more stable shooting base so you can engage more difficult targets or targets that might disappear between behind a barricade if you start shifting your weight as you shift the target disappears so you can't really go anywhere while you're engaging so the pivot push you just pivot to rotate your hips in the direction you want to move and simultaneously you're taking a step with your leading foot got it so you're you're pivoting uh, on the balls of your feet and then in the direction of travel and then driving with a leading foot that like if I'm going, if I'm standing in position, pivoting with my left and right foot and I'm going to the left, my left foot leads. Exactly. Okay. Got it. And that one is much better if you have any history of joint injuries or any kind of injuries from about the hips down. Okay. So you're not over rotating your hips. You're pivoting on the balls of your feet before your hips or, or before you're starting to move, your hips are already aligned versus crossover where you're driving your hips with your the rotation of your leg. Exactly. Okay. And then the last one for getting out of position is what? So th- that one is called the drop step. There are a couple of different scenarios where the drop step is effective. Most of the time we avoid it in sports shooting just because it's adding a step in the wrong direction to launch you like a springboard into the right direction. You're using your ankles sort of like a springboard or a lever to get yourself moving when you don't have any momentum. So if the way you want to move is positive momentum, the opposite direction is negative momentum. So the time you want to use a drop step is when you have negative momentum. You have body mass on the wrong side of your center line when you want to go the opposite direction. Hmm. So if you're in a hard left lean, you would take a step with your left foot opposite of the way you want to go and then use that to launch you in into the right direction moving to the right because it's that it's like if i'm running into a position for cover shooting the left side of a barricade and i've stepped in i'm using the body momentum to push me in that position to shoot off the left side and then i'm spring loading myself back to bounce out of it is that what it is? Sort of, yeah. It's a quick jab at the ground with that foot, almost mm. like you're kicking off the ground to get yourself moving. Got it. And that's the that's the foot that's leading, right? The trail no, foot is... the trail foot is the one you jab at the ground with. Oh, it stabs down, pivots hard, and then you launch off with the lead foot. or the. You yeah. shouldn't even have to pivot. So sometimes it depends on if you have any injuries as well, but using that outside edge of your foot with your foot flat... You're using that outside edge to launch yourself, but if you have any history of ankle, knee, or hip injuries, that's not going to work for you. Or if you're significantly overweight, you end up, your body mass just continues on and you roll over your ankle. So Mm. if that's the case, you have to rotate that foot and go off the ball of your foot instead of the outside edge. Okay. And and, um, if you're listening to this and you don't have a good visual imagination, uh, the YouTube video... If it's done before this podcast drops, we'll just put it in the link in the notes so that you can see the kind of details of, of uh, I know we slow motion captured you pivoting in these positions, getting out of it. Let's talk about getting into position. And, and you told me you focus on getting out before getting in. Why, why is that? 
Because you need to know whether or not you are effectively getting out of position. And a good judge of that is whether or not on the other end, things kind of fall apart a little bit. Mm. So basically when you first learn how to exit a position properly, you want to see things fall apart on the other end. You want to see that you're overrunning your second position or sliding in or things are kind of going sideways because that means now you're moving more explosively than you ever ever were before and now you have to learn how to control it. Mm, so that's sense. a good indicator. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, let's talk about getting into position. Is that broken down into three as well? Or is there, How many is there? Yeah, there are about three. Okay. So coming into the shooting position, you want to take decelerating steps. So if you're speeding up, slowing down, or moving around obstacles, you don't want to be taking a full stride. If you're taking a full stride, it's not a steady base. Your feet aren't under your center of gravity, and there's not a whole lot of spring in your muscles because your muscles are at full stretch if you're at a full stride. Also, the more you push off the ground, the more the ground has an opportunity to push back on you. So the more frequent contacts you're making with the ground, the more times you're pushing off the ground, and the more you can control your speed. Kind of like how the wheels on a race car are really wide. It increases the surface area, which increases the amount of contact the, the tires have with the pavement. And that, that way they're spending less time speeding up and slowing down and more time at their maximum speed. Well, we can't increase the surface area of our feet, but we can cre- increase the frequency of contacts we make with the ground. So I've never, the first time I thought about this was in, um, I was teaching San Antonio police department over a decade ago and we were doing a drill where we were running to a patrol car and then shooting an array of targets beyond the patrol car. So they were moving from cover to cover and then, um, working a scenario, but they were in the scenario from the time they launched from the first position. So they, it was an active situation, meaning that it wasn't canned. So they, they had to arrive prepared. And what I noticed is, um, one of the guys asked me, he goes, Hey, well, are you going to teach a technique on, on arriving? And I'm like, you just arrive. And so <laughs> the first like five guys and gals, it was patrol officers were running to the car and then door checking it with their body and then arriving. Some guys were even, like in the Hollywood uh, uh, depiction, they were turning their back towards the threat and smacking their back to put on the brakes to hit the car aggressively and then thrusting themselves around. And I was like, wow, I actually have to teach deceleration. I thought it was just a common sense thing, but it's not, right? It's, it's It's not often discussed because people think when there's an obstacle, you bail for cover, but they forget there's a difference between bailing to cover with no firearm and no means of protect or protecting yourself or engaging a threat and, and doing so with a firearm and staying in the fight. And when you talk about deceleration, I'm like, man, this, everybody needs to know about this. Like it's a basic fundamental that everybody should know. Um, what is the, what is the, uh, the second tactic? So once you have decelerated, then you need a technique for how you're going to set up your feet. And you need to do it in such a way that you aren't putting a whole lot of weight on your final foot that contacts the ground. If you end up stomping that foot down, it jars your sights and delays your shooting. Also coming in low and smooth, making sure you're not popping up or hopping up and down. Because if you're hopping up and down, your sights are hopping up and down, which also delays your shooting. So the cross uncross is a good way to come into a position especially if it's very positional where if I don't stand in this exact spot I'm not going to be able to see my target and you really have to measure out those steps and it's a really steady base to come into you really have to decelerate quite a bit before you do this one basically you're just crossing your trailing foot over your leading foot and then you uncross into your stance and that way it forces you to catch all of your weight before you set down that final foot. Toes are the gas and heels are the brakes. So when, when you're doing this, um, it's not just like a uh, box on the ground. We're talking about like setting yourself up position-wise for cover, concealment, or, what, or the engagement in the open. So what's the orientation 
of your pistol or, or your rifle in this uh, example. So this is for a lateral entry. All of this discussion is for lateral movement. So your your pistol is going to be oriented toward the rear berm, you know, pointed straight in front of you mm. because your hips are going to be rotated toward the targets rather than the direction of movement. By the time you're coming into the position, your hips are already rotating. Yeah, because this is what I tell people in, um, in tactical classes. If we're moving laterally and I'm telling you to orient your pistol or carbine towards the berm, yes, I want you to keep it oriented because I don't want you flagging anybody with your gun. But I also want you to understand that we want to put the barrel where the intended threat is potentially going to come from or the most likelihood of where the threat could come from. So when you're running from A to B laterally across a range and you have the barrel up, down, pointed at the obstacle that you're going towards, you're behind in your ability yes. to react. And so it's not just a safety consideration. Um, it's also a tactical. It's a very relevant tactical consideration. So when you arrive, you decelerate. And what was the, the, the way you framed it? Cross, uncross. Cross, uncross. You are set up to go straight into that shooting scenario yes. or that self-defense situation. Um, what's the last one? Step catch. Step catch. Now this one is a little bit more aggressive and harder to learn how to control so you're coming in low and smooth without hopping up and down. This one is sort of like a, I actually got it from a soccer move. So rather than crossing your legs and uncrossing them, you are sideways catching your weight on your trailing foot and then gently setting down your leading foot. Got it. So you're rotating your hips towards the threat or downrange, and yes. then you are putting on the brakes with the rear leg, which catches or steps, catches. Catches. And then the and lightly positioning the lead foot wherever it's going to land. Which is the step. Is that because the orientation of the shoot might be on the right side of the obstacle? for that situation, or does it not matter? It doesn't matter. It sets you, you up for no matter or. where it is. Okay, got it, got it. So even if you step catched and you were shooting off the left side going right to left, you could step catch and then transition the upper body on the left side of the barricade and be set up already to shoot on the right side? Basically, your torso would remain in the same place in space as your legs continue on into the position they need to be behind the cover. Mm. So your torso would basically stop just to the left of the barricade where you want to be shooting as your feet are landing in position. And you can already be shooting before your foot hits the ground, depending on target difficulty. Interesting. I love this stuff. Hey, guys, we're going to get back to the Fieldcraft Survival podcast in just a minute. But in the meantime, I just want to recognize one of our sponsors. This is a company that I've, I've recently started trying out their stuff and I'll tell you, at first, when you look at it, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, it's green drink. What does it taste like? But it's really not that bad. And guys, I've tried a whole bunch of different uh, athletic supplements over the years, everything from, you know, different proteins to uh, different enhancers for like the keto diet and whatnot. I actually enjoy this stuff and I'm going to look forward to, to drinking this. I've got a whole bunch of their samples and uh, I'm already, I'm already a, a big fan of it. So the company is Athletic Greens. The website is athleticgreens.com. And if you use the coupon code athleticgreens.com forward slash fieldcraft, um, you can get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first free purchase. Now, guys, I'm headed uh, tonight to teach a course out of town, and I can't bring the big bag of Athletic Greens, so I'm going to bring these little uh, individual per, uh, uh, packets. And something that's cool about this company, like, if you're in the, the back country and you're only eating protein and you're not getting a lot of your greens, you're going to get backed up. This stuff kind of keeps you regular. Um, so today's program is brought to you by Athletic Greens. And here's the details. Uh, it's the most comprehensive daily nutritional beverage um, that I've ever tried. It's, uh, you know, something we can say is that while most nutritional products come to market and stay stagnant, Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve on the one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade, and we're still counting, guys. 
They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional uh, habit on the planet. Again, all you got to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash fieldcraft and get your free supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. Uh, this stuff, I'm, I'm not the only fan of this here in the company. Didi's a big fan. Uh, Kevin Owens, we're going to try to get him to, to drink this stuff. Put some alcohol in it. Yeah, we'll see what we can do about that. All right, guys, let's get back to this podcast. So um, talking about getting out and getting into position, it's not just like uh, the efficiency and getting in and staying on your feet. It's also about efficiency and moving your body from position to position. We call it alternate positions, right? And that's prone, that's kneeling. I mean, that's, in, that's also invented positions. Like we teach fetal left, fetal right, uh, shooting from your ass, shooting from your back. Um, and in your book, you cover that as well, right? Yes. What, what's, the, what's the idea of teaching technique um, for specific positions? versus letting somebody just getting getting in that position. So a lot of times if you just try to get into and out of a position quickly, you're not using your body in the way it moves the most efficiency efficiently. You're trying to muscle your way through it instead of using leverage. Mm. So the way that I teach uses leverage. I give multiple options because everyone is built differently. So I have a more athletic option with getting into prone where it's just one point of contact as you're getting up and down. Mm. So it looks like you're just standing on one hand with your body in the air in the pictures as you're getting up and down. And then I have another option for people who've had pain and injuries, things like that, where they have to push off of their knees to help them stand or to lower themselves into that position. So there are various options depending on your body type. Yeah, it's like staging. If you're like you're staging one phase at a time versus just hopping to your feet, because what I've realized in teaching civilians, half my classes, including myself in, in some ways, has some either a composition deficiency where they might be overweight, um, or they have a disability. They might have like an injury um, or an actual disability that prevents them from moving super dynamic. And so you're covering down on both. Right. I love that. Um, how do you evolve everything that you're doing right now and talking about specific efficiency for co the competitive world, how do you evolve that into the tactical world, a 360 environment? Well, I think there is a lot of carryover. I mean, I talk about the crossover step for close-up and easy targets, so that would be okay, this target is a higher threat, they're closer to me, versus doing a pivot push on farther, more difficult targets. So it's already sort of built in there. It's just a matter of applying it. Yeah, it's, it, it makes sense to me. I think it's super important. When we talked on the phone, um, I was telling you how I wish that we had that kind of training early on. I mean, we would bring in, we brought them all in. Uh, we brought in Dave Savigny, we brought in Todd Jarrett, Robbie Latham, like all of them. And one thing that I noticed that we never focused on was movement. Dave was better in movement because he was a collegiate hockey player. And mm -hmm. so he had a, a lot, in fact, I think one of the main reasons, he was kind of the turning point for, I think, the Ipsic world because when he came in, it was like, whoa, this dude's moving, right? And so you take a a production pistol Glock 34 or Glock 17 or whatever. And, and he's like running and gunning. Everybody's like, Whoa. And you start looking at him and he started talking about positioning and, and movement, but that's something that's not often discussed, even for guys like patrol officers who are constantly moving. I mean, they're on their feet. If they're addressing a threat, if they're on a SWAT team, they're loaded down with kit and they're one thing that they could, uh, optimize is definitely their movement. Um, how do you, how do you bridge the gap though? How, because when I, it's difficult for me to understand how you would bridge the gap because you're moving on a plane in one direction, hence 180. Like you're, you're, 
you're constrained by the rules of the flat range, right? A left and right limit, and then you have a backstop. Now we have to get super dynamic because now we're talking about a three-dimensional, 360-degree environment. Are we going to talk about, um, I mean, where do we go from here? Is it all about orientation up, down, left and right? It's, it's everything, right? Well, I talk about movement in the third dimension in my book, actually. So, yeah, there are multiple planes, and your body isn't just moving based on the number of steps you're taking in a particular direction. It's moving up and down, in and out. It's all different directions. So you have to take that into account and make sure you're minimizing dead time and minimizing the amount of movement your body is making, not making extraneous movement where there's no need to, making sure you're pumping your arms to propel yourself, making sure you're staying down low, shock absorbing your sights so they're not bouncing around. All of these things are applicable to a 360 world. I often beat all my students. I think I've lost once in stress shoots. And I always tell them <laughs> it's not because I'm a, the best shooter because I'm not. I mean, I, I've never been the best shooter uh, in the in the groups. Um, but I, I, I understand uh, where people are losing time, especially in getting into position and getting out of position. And that little bit of time in one position over time in different stages or different alternate positions starts yeah, adding up. And so what I've often found is the best shooter uh, here. This is kind of the the laziest. Well, yeah, (laughs) the micro analysis of it is I see the best shooter and I go, how is he moving? And then he might win, but I know because I'm looking at his movement, his deficiency. Like I see how he's getting in. I see, and I have this thing about barrel orientation. I see the barrel. And if I see the barrel come off of the target, and deviate from the target, like retracting the gun in and out, that person forgets that there's a, a shot process that, that requires acquisition, right? Which is the barrel's aligned with the target, my optic is aligned, my eyes transition from target to front sight or target to dot to target to, or dot to target. That whole process takes seconds when you add, them, add it up over time. And so every time I see that, I go, oh, there's a second there, there's three seconds there. And I realized that when I run run it and I set the position, it, it's just like what you say. It's, a, it's minimizing the amount of movement to make it more efficient in time, which makes you more likely to be accurate because you're not over moving. I think people, it's weird to me. I don't know why, but people move too much. It's like, yes. they're, they're, like when I see these guys on a barricade and they set the gun, and then they retract the gun and then go to the other side and then set the gun. I'm like, if they would have took six inches back to the rear, they could have shot the sequence, transitioned their body, stayed in the acquisition stage of looking at threat focus and just replicated that same thing. You, you, you make a living microprocessing all of these little, these little factors. Is that why you came up with the book? Which, what, when did you write that book? I think that was three years ago. Okay, so it hasn't been that long. Um, no. Walk me through that process. Well, that it was actually published. Uh, so you had been writing it for the last years. I had been, well, I did started doing all the research in 2010. It took me years to do the research that went into this book. Tell, tell me about the research and then the book itself, because I want people, one, to pick it up, but I want them to understand kind of like your journey on that. Yeah, this is not just a typical shooting book where someone just writes what they know about what's worked for them. This is more like a textbook, but I have it set up for different learning styles as well. So if you like reading something like a textbook, that's there. If your learning style is more visual, then I also have it set up like a comic book where you can look at pictures and read the text box and you've read the book. Then in the back of the book, I have all of my references listed. So all of the books that I read from other sports to apply them to our sport and see what worked, or not just our sport, but to moving and shooting. So I have that long list of references, and people can go and check out the original books that I drew these ideas from. And then I had to test the theories, because at this point, 
they were just theories. So testing that on very experienced top shooters in the world was very helpful to figure out what worked and what didn't. Mm. So did, when, you, um, when you did the analysis of looking at different sports, what sport was most applicable to the way a shooter moved? Um, I would say I used a lot of football. Mm. I used soccer, basketball, tennis, and even golf for the vision training. Mm. Interesting. So you have a vision training aspect of this too? Yes. So this is based on research by Joan Vickers. Mm -hmm. She's a kinesiologist who in 2007 decided she wanted to figure out what separated elite athletes who have to aim from other professional athletes who have to aim. So she put glasses on them that tracked their vision and figured out what the difference was. So I found that to be very interesting. I've read all of her books and drawn conclusions based on her research and applied them to shooting. Mm. So I do have a section in that book on vision. Also, my next book that's coming out, Train Smarter, Not Harder, is going to have some more on vision training as well. Talk to me about training smarter, not harder. I mean, that's a, a, a really common saying in the special operations world because people are used to just sucking it up and, you know, grits, you know, getting it done. <clears throat> but if you train smarter, it means you're paying attention to all the details. Well, one thing is you need to make sure your brain is engaged during your, your practice, whether it's in dry fire or live fire, you need to be constantly engaged. If you go on autopilot, you're not, you're just wasting bullets, just throw them in the garbage. It's not worth it. So you do that through variable practice, random practice and decision training. Those are the three main techniques that can, they're actually scientifically proven to help you learn a skill in half the time. Mm. So to say that again, what is it? It's, it's decision training, randomized practice and variable practice. Mm. So I, sh in this book I'm working on, I show you how to set up your training plan, utilizing those three techniques. Mm -hmm. And then I have examples of training plans for different skill levels. So, and that applies to anything. That's yes. not just shooting. That, that's anything that you want to learn. Yes. Okay, interesting. So I took it. It's a scientifically, scientifically proven method to learn a skill in half the time. So I read all of the research on this and then applied it to shooting. Can we break that down a little bit? So the first thing is what? It's this, what'd you say it was? So decision training yeah. is, let's say you are doing one particular thing in your practice, but you have another thing in the back of your mind that you may or may not have to call on and you don't know when. So you have some sort of a indicator that tells you when you have to switch. So I use blaze pods. They're those little light up pods that you can either set to a timer or they activate by touch. Mm. So I'll put them under my targets on the wall for dry fire and then I'll have one with no target. So what I'm working on is I will engage whichever target lights up. And then when the, the light with no target lights up, then I switch to um, my right hand only. Mm. When it lights up again, I go back to freestyle with two hands on the gun. So the thing I'm working on is freestyle, two hands on the gun, but I have in the back of my mind, when that light goes off, then I'm going to switch to my strong hand only. Interesting. So that's decision training. That's forcing you to make decisions through, like a cognitive decision through right. the process of training instead of just autonomically just going on autopilot. It forces you to think through those technicals. Exactly. Okay. What's the second one? Variable practice. Okay. What's that? So variable practice does not change the thing that you're practicing, but something will vary from one string to the next or one run to the next. So let's say I'm practicing shooting on the move. First, I'm going to move laterally, laterally left to right. Mm -hmm. Then I'm going to move laterally right to left, then front to back, then back to front. So I'm still practicing shooting on the move. That's the thing I'm doing. But from one run to the next, something always varies. That, got it. So you don't get caught in the same loop of the same practice because when you deviate, then you won't have the variable training that's going to allow you to adapt. Right. And it keeps you more engaged. More engaged too. 
Okay. So you retain more from your practice. Got it. And then the what's the final one? So the final one is random practice. Mm. So you have a set of skills that you want to work on, and they have different priorities. So something you're really good at and you like to practice because it's fun because you're good at it, you actually need to insert into your practice sessions less often. And the ones that you are really struggling with, you need to put in there more often. That seems like common sense, right? But now you need to randomize which ones you're going to do. So let's say you pick three things that you're going to practice in your practice session, and you've rated every skill that you want to work on from 1 to 10, and 1 means you're really good at it. It doesn't have to go in there very often. 10 means it's a brand new skill. You've never even done it before, so it needs to go in there a lot until you get it. Now you can randomly draw from those things, and if it's a 10, it's entered in there 10 times. If it's a one, it's only entered in there once. So the ones you randomly select will be based on how many times they're put in the pot, so to speak. Wow. That's super interesting. That's super deliberate. But like you said, it's common sense, but a lot of people don't follow that practice because we often fall in love with the things that we're strong at. Like guys will go in and bench press all day long and their legs are like little pencils and they will never work because it's hard. It's more difficult to do. So... It's basically creating what I've realized in all this stuff. It's really basic, but most often people don't follow these kind of little fundamental protocols because they'll go like they'll go to the gym and just pick up weights and start throwing them around. If you don't have a foundation, you don't have a path, you don't have a analytic, you're never going to improve because you're not measuring anything. Right. And this is just a more deliberate process to actually have an analytical process to make yourself better, right? Another thing I really like is desirable difficulties. Mm. You do something basically that is really pissing you off just because it makes it stick in your brain. So you probably don't remember the last time you went out shooting and it was a nice, sunny, beautiful day, but you do remember when you went out shooting and it started downpouring and all your stuff got soaked. Mm. So you're still practicing what you're practicing, but it's more, it seems more difficult, but it makes it stick in your brain more. So you retain more of what you learned. So does that mean you seek it more difficult or if like, if it's raining outside, you go out and train in the rain or. Well, what I do is if I'm going to shoot a competition and I know it's going to be pouring this weekend and it's also going to be raining during the week, I'm going to go practice in the rain for at least one practice session. So I feel comfortable shooting in the rain. Interesting. I, I had a, a special operations buddy of mine who's actually a mentor of mine, and people used to say, oh, that dude, he, he goes out and runs at the hottest time of the day. And now looking back on that, I'm like, well, yeah, that's what you exactly what you do. But back then, we didn't do that. Nobody did that because they're like, that's crazy. But, but a, as I grew up in special operations, it's like, that's normal. Like you, yeah. you seek the difficulty, but... I remember how impactful that was and thinking, wow, that dude must be crazy because he's going out at the hottest time of the day running. Why wouldn't he run at like zero six in the morning when it's 30 degrees cooler, but he's going out and he's in the most difficult hour optimizing his his physical routine, exactly. which is benefiting him the most. That makes That's total exactly sense. exactly what a di- desirable difficulty is. Another thing I do is when I go practice on the range, I'll wear like cheap plastic scratched up protective eyewear and then when I go to shoot a competition I'll wear my nice Hunter's HD gold perfectly cleaned with anti-fog on them and I feel like wow I can really see everything so clearly it's so easy it's so interesting those little little details I used to run when I used to run in the army the APFT uh, which is so silly but it's like the a two-mile run and I would carry um, I would carry a rock and I would run that first mile with a rock, and you typically it was like a mile out and a mile back. And then at the end of the first mile, I would dump the rock. But the feeling of like dropping off weight out of my hand was it psychologically was like I just I just dropped a hundred pounds. Where I'm like, thank goodness this rock is out of my hand, and it surged me to like accelerate for that last mile. And I don't those little nuances are how I think the best people in the world become the most elite. 
You know, it's just like those small little details of nuances that make your training and your actual routine just more elite. It's crazy. I never even thought about that. Yeah, it's really all in your head. It is. It <laughs> absolutely is. Um, when does that book come out? I don't know yet. It hasn't been. I'm still working on it. Okay, I'm so still you're writing still, it. Okay. Yeah. So the your book, um, what's the name of your book? And then where can people get that book at? The one that is published is Smart Move, Economy of Motion for the Shooting Sports. It is for the shooting sports in the title, but a lot of this is applicable to the 360 world. Mm. And so are you going to change the name from 180 to 360? Or is it 180 stand for something different? It's 180 because of ITAR. Oh, is it? Yeah, because if it's sports shooting, then I can go oh. and teach in other countries. Oh, really? Oh, I never even thought about that. That's actually smart. <laughs> That's why it's called 180 fire, Firearms Training, and I'm a movement coach. Wow. Okay, so that's that would have saved me like $100,000 a few years ago when I did all my ITAR compliance stuff for foreign countries. That, so Okay, that's interesting, because if you're sport shooting, um, like IPSC or USPSA is throughout the world, right? Right. I see Rikaza all over the Southeast yep. Asia, and um, wow, <laughs> that's so funny. Okay, so... Um, I'm a stinker. That's awesome. That's the, that's the <laughs> way to do it. Um, so... We had talked about, and I won't let the cat out of the bag completely, but this is so relevant to tactical guys and gals. Like if you're a SWAT officer, an SRT person, even a patrol officer, a military guy, a, a government contractor, man, like, like I said before, if even in the military, if I had this, or even as a contractor, if I had this, it'd be so much more beneficial. Um, we're going to start talking about curriculum, uh, periods of instruction, putting stuff together, because it's important for everybody to know, but even military and law enforcement. Um, where does that where does that journey start? Is it trying to look at tactics, and then the implementation of movement in tactics? How how are we going to begin that? Well, I think I'm going to be asking you a lot of questions. I've had guys go off to deployment, come back and tell me that three seconds you cut off my movement saved my life. Mm. And that really got my wheels to start turning and thought, I need to find a way to convey this to people shooting in the 360 world so it could be saving lives. It absolutely will save lives. I mean, it's very easy to see how saving time and even setting position. Like when I see my, my pet peeve as a, as a sergeant major, I guess, is when I see tactical guys going through the door um, I just saw a picture this morning of the 75th Ranger Regiment. And I don't know the scenario because they, they often wouldn't be doing this, but they had their guns at the low port or low carry with their barrels in the ground as they were entering a house. And I thought to myself, nobody's ever taught them. Because if you ran, if you, if you ran Sims, a Sim scenario, where you knew you could potentially get shot in training through the front door, or there was an active shooter bad guy in the house, the orientation of your gun and the positioning of your body would be completely different. And so I, what I often see is people train for the institution or they train for like checking the block, but they don't train for the reality of the, the worst case scenario, like a bad guy shooting at you or a bad guy waiting to shoot at you. And that whole idea model and movement is most important. Because if your position isn't set up right, if you're not prepared to break off the X, if you're not prepared to move dynamically in a certain way, you literally could get killed. And I, it's so important. Um, I'm super interested to start that journey with you because I think it's uh, it's something that, I mean, you're already in a small period of time that I spent with you. I've learned a lot, even from the, the step movement. I do some of that stuff naturally, but some of it I don't. Um, and you could articulate it, you, you have experience in it, and it's your specialty. Um, are you gonna come back out here and, and, and run a course? Yeah, I'd love to. And I don't claim in any way to be a tactician of any sorts. I specialize in movement and in coaching movement for people shooting firearms. So I wanna pick your brain about all the tactical techniques and see what movement applies and where we can where we can put that. And once we get a curriculum together, then 
yeah, definitely. I would come back out here and work with the guys out here on that. That'd be super fun. We we're doing the sim stuff downstairs and evolving that program and already see it. I already know there's a place to implement that. And depending on where we get on the conversation today, it'd be cool to bring you out to New Jersey SWAT because now I'm teaching them in May and then, and have you teach a block of instruction to them on movement. Um, so if you're a New Jersey state patrol SWAT guy, um, be prepared. We'll do, <laughs> we'll do that. Um, cool. Well, Keita, thank you so much for, for being on the podcast. Where can people find your stuff? Um, website, uh, social media, all that stuff. Yeah, my website is 180firearmstraining.com. If you would like to set up a movement class near you, you can email me, 180firearmstraining at gmail.com. Or if you'd like a personalized copy of my book, Smart Move, Economy of Motion for the Shooting Sports, which is also available on Amazon. My Instagram is Bussy. That's K-I-T-A-B-U-S-S-E. And my Facebook is 180firearms training. And it's actually on, on it's 180firearmstraining.com. It's your website? Correct. Awesome. Cool. Thank you so much, Kita. My pleasure.